want to talk to you today, and we're going to read a chunk of the Bible. Is that okay? We read the Bible? Okay. I thought you might be. And uh, we're going to talk about this. It's, it's called Flexing Our Spiritual 2020, okay? And it's something in my heart. This, this is a, a sort of scripture that's been bouncing around my head since about the 9th of May, okay? And uh, I just haven't got a place to, to get it together. And then this Sunday is the place where I'm going to bring this message. And I feel God is... Um, he's, 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 he's wanting you and I, wanting the church, wanting us as individuals and collectively to flex our spiritual 2020, okay? And I'm going to unpack that more uh, as we go through. But I want to read to you from John chapter 9. It'll be a story that's maybe brand new to some of you. That's sweet. Uh, it could be familiar to others. And I want to read the first 17. I know, right? 17 verses and then another six verses at the end. All right, so we're going to make it. We're going to climb this mountain together, okay? But uh, it's a great story uh, nonetheless. So here we go. Uh, John chapter 9. The verses will be behind me. I think it'll come up uh, on your phones, tablets, Bible, paper, whatever you've got. Uh, let's go. John 9 verse 1. Uh, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. This is the only person that Jesus healed that was blind from birth. Other men were healed, but they're in Acts and other apostle writings. But this is the only one in the Gospels that's been recorded. Okay, verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What a great verse, and we'll come back to it. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. At night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 6, after saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And verse 9 says, some claimed that he was. Others said, no, no, he only looks like him. But the man himself insisted, listen, I am the man, it's me. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes and told me to go to Siloam and to wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. Well, I don't know, he said, because he was blind, didn't know what he looked like. And, and then they sent him off, so he had no idea. He only could hear him, all right? I don't know. He doesn't know what he is, all right? You think this through, there's a bit of comedy there. Okay, anyway, verse 13. Uh, they brought him to the Pharisees then, okay? This is a shrewd move. The man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes with a Sabbath. Ooh, okay, it was a Sabbath. Uh, therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he uh, received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, I love this verse for all the wrong reasons. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. It's a stunning revelation, isn't it? How wrapped up are you? Anyway, but others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man and they asked him, what have you to say about him? How were your eyes 
it was your eyes that he opened and the man replied, look, he is a prophet. Let me jump to verse 35 and read to the end of the chapter. When Jesus heard uh, that they'd thrown him out, so the Pharisees had this argument with the blind man, called his parents in. They said nothing really. And uh, this sort of blind man started to quote the Bible to the Pharisees, okay? Started quoting scripture and they'd had enough of the great unwashed and they chucked him out, all right? Jesus finds him uh, in verse 35. And when Jesus heard that he'd thrown him out and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. When the man said, uh, then the man said, Lord, I believed and he worshiped him. Jesus says, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who will uh, become blind. Some Pharisees were, uh, who were with them uh, heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains, okay? Not messing about with the Pharisees. So Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. What a wonderful story, familiar to so many, new to some. And so God, we pray that the, uh, Lord, everything you want me to say today, Lord God, be the editor of everything. Please just make sure that everything you, what's on your heart gets to my lips and into our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I don't know how many of you are married in the room, okay? I'm not going to go for a hands up, okay? But sooner or later, all the men will know that there are a few handfuls of sentences that your wife will say you know is going to change everything. <laughs> Things like the car's making a funny noise or something like that. Here's my, here's my favorite, everyone, okay? When Judith says this, this room needs a lick of paint. <laughs> oh, man. I, I know, okay, that behind those six words is a world, a world of work, okay, which I try to put off for a very long time, but sooner or later, it finds you, okay? And so recently in our house, we have like a, a three-story. So you go in, there's the hall, garage is off there, you go through to the kitchen, and when the kids were smaller, we put on a single-story extension. Then you go up to the living room and a bedroom and up again to three more, but that's kind of, so we're a big sort of kind of terrace. The playroom thing that we built for the kids hadn't been touched, apart from some paint maybe, um, in, I don't know, 16 years so about two months ago, Judith walked into this room and says, you know what? This room needs a lick of paint. And a small part of me just died and went away, okay? Because a lick of paint meant paint the walls. It also meant paint the ceilings. It meant do the kitchen floor. It meant dump old sofas. It meant buy new sofas. It meant reupholster and wire wool all the kitchen chairs you have and recover those. And worst of all, everybody, it meant building stuff from Ikea. Yes? Okay. Now, we've only known each other a little while, about 18 months, but you already know DIY in my world stands for what? Destroy it yourself. I just don't do stuff, all right? Now, and, and that didn't stop there because our, our playroom runs onto the backyard, okay? And so because it played onto the backyard, I, lick, I had to give that a lick of paint as well in the form of, okay, power hose all the garden, power hose the fence, repaint the fence, replant all the stuff. And because now the dog's a little bit older, we can put the stones back around the edges. <laughs> He digs stuff, you know what I mean? It was mental, new drain covers. Honestly, I need help. <laughs> but here's the point of the whole story, and it's this. There is always a cost when the one you love wants to do something new. 
Yes? There's always going to be a cost, everyone, when the one you love wants to do something new. And it might not even be like a financial cost as it was for me, okay? And, but the reality is that when God wants to do something new in you or something new through you, even collectively as a church, you discover that there is a disturbance, there is an emotional cost, there is a sacrifice, there is a walking away. You have to leave one thing to journey into another. And I want to encourage you, you know what, the reality is that you will discover if you will pay the price that the cost was worth it in the end. It's always worth it when Jesus is leading you somewhere new. In, in the story that we've read today in John chapter 9, there's lots of different things going on, lots of different ways to preach about it and so on, but there are a couple of things that I want to talk about. If you zoom out, and I mean zoom right the way to the top of it, okay, what you will see is in Jesus this disruptive arrival of the kingdom of God, okay, this huge disruption. We're so sanitized to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we're so used to the Gospels that we've lost sight of the sheer chaos that Jesus created when he began his ministry. And God was doing something new, doing something new through Jesus, and the Pharisees couldn't handle it. And here's the thing, they just couldn't see it. They couldn't flex their spiritual 2020. And so with all of my heart for every single one of you and together for us as a local church, I believe the heart of God is this, that we need to learn again to flex our spiritual 2020. God is doing something new, that we would have 2020 spiritual vision. And then when God is speaking to us and calling us to respond, we would just do it. We would respond to it with a full heart, excited once more about the new thing that God wants to do even though, everybody, we might feel disturbed. We might wonder, is this the Lord? It might feel like an, an emotional sacrifice. It might even be a letting go of something. In Matthew 13, we read this phenomenal parable all about the sower. We're familiar with, with the sower. And as Jesus, he shares the parable, the disciples, they're, they're confused. They're like, Jesus, what that mean? Uh, that was a lovely story, all the rock and the birds and stuff. What was it about? And, and Jesus goes, right, okay, here's, here's what it's about. And, and Matthew 13, verse 11 through 13, and I've bolted on 16 and 17 as well. This is what Jesus said. He says, look, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. He says, not everybody has this gift. This insight hasn't been given to them. And then he carries on and he says, whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow fleetly. But if there's no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. And Jesus, that's why I tell stories, to create readiness, to nudge the people towards receptive insight. He says, in their present state, they can stir till doomsday and not see it. They can listen till they're blue in the face and still not get it. And then he goes to the disciples in verse 16. He says, but you have, and I love this, you have God-blessed eyes. 
Not a beautiful thing. You already have God-blessed eyes. You already have spiritual 2020. You've got eyes that see. And more than that, you've God-blessed ears. Some of us have more God-blessed ears than others. Ears that hear. I have one ear that sits in and one that was in the cot that side. Anyway, God-blessed ears, ears that hear. A lot of people and prophets and humble believers among them would have given anything to see what you are seeing, to hear what you are hearing but never had the chance. Now, when Jesus and when the gospel writers, when they talk about spiritual blindness, what they mostly mean and correctly mean are people like who we used to be. Remember the days when we were spiritually blind? Am I on? Or is this the only church in all the world where you were all born with spiritual 2020? Okay, I, I didn't think so, okay? I was definitely born spiritually blind, unbelieving, unresponsive to the call of faith. Amen? Come on, we all remember our journey to faith because there's a journey to be taken. No one was born again the first time around. Otherwise, you were just born. We had to be born again. Amen? That, that's it. We, have, we didn't have spiritual 2020. And so that's what spiritual blindness means mostly in the New Testament. But what I want to talk about here is for every follower of Jesus in the room, I want to remind you that you have insight into the kingdom of God. Your spiritual eyes are open. You have God-blessed eyes. But here's what I've discovered in the journey of faith, everyone, at least in my own faith, that even though Jesus says, because of him, my spiritual eyes are open, that I am open to the receptivity of the Spirit, sometimes in certain seasons, I can develop Christian cataracts. I can develop that, that condition, and maybe it happens to you too, and I'm sensing with the response that perhaps it does. Cataracts, for anybody who hasn't had them, are like a, a cloudy thing that comes across the eyes, making life hard to see. You can get it fixed, thank goodness, it's an easy enough thing, but nevertheless, it's cloudy, it's a bit disorientating, and I'm sure it must be very, very frightening. But so I want to talk a little bit about this and how, how do we know if we've got Christian cataracts, okay? Well, number one thing is this, everyone. When I Googled cataracts, do you know what one of the top three or four symptoms are? Number, number one is this, sensitivity to light. Hmm, sensitivity to light. And this makes so much sense to me in verse five of John nine, when Jesus says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And sometimes we have this Christian cataracts, the cloudiness of what, what happens over our lens of our faith can make Jesus hard to see, and we are sensitive to the light. It's what happens. So when the Holy Spirit then begins to move within us, we find our eyes turning away from Jesus. Maybe we are going through a season where we feel the gnaw of the Spirit, the knock of God on our hearts, and we are simply ignoring it. Maybe we don't want to trust in the moment we find ourselves in. We are not feeling convicted so much. We're putting off the leading of the Lord. We're, we're just not as responsive uh, like we used to be. We can recall seasons when we were on fire. Like life for us was like watching Al read the announcements today. You are on it today, my man. Unbelievable. Just, wow, let's go. I want to go everywhere he tells me I want to go. It's fantastic. And that's how we used to have. But some of us, we have maybe cloudiness of faith over the, the eyes of our heart. And we are sensitive to the word. We're sensitive to prayer. We, we're just not on it or in it at the moment. Second thing is this, that perhaps we prefer a long-sighted lens. 
in verse 29 of, of, of John 9, we didn't read it out, but the Pharisees, we, we begin to see the lens of their life. And they said this in verse 29, we are disciples of Moses. That's who we are. And in that one sentence, you can discern the lens of their faith. From years ago, years and years ago, this is a long-sighted lens, and it messes things up for them in a couple of ways. And the first thing it does, it messes up the signs. They have cataracts through a long-distance lens. They fail to absorb the redemptive relationship between Exodus and the incarnation. In other words, because of their long-sighted lens, everyone, they couldn't connect what God was doing for Israel in the Exodus was what Jesus had come to do for the whole world. They couldn't join those dots because their lens was so long-sighted. Not only did they miss the signs, but they missed the Sabbath. Because of the concept of the Sabbath began with Moses, and Moses is their lens, everybody, and the law said that nothing should happen on the Sabbath. If you follow the story through and you follow the remark of one of the Pharisees, this man couldn't heal on this day because God doesn't do stuff on the Sabbath. What an incredible thing to come out with. It really is. Part of this thinking meant if you follow it all through to its logical conclusion, it means that looking through the long-sighted lens meant that God would do nothing good on the Sabbath, even though he could, but he wouldn't because God wouldn't move on this day. They had ring-fenced God's power. They'd ring-fenced God's nature. They'd redefined God's who, who he really was, and they'd kept a day out of his reach. An extraordinary thing. And then they messed up scripture. And this must have got right up their nose. Here was a man who was born blind from birth. And because of the social strata of the day, there was nothing more they could do but sit in a corner somewhere and beg. And yet this man now can see. He goes into the synagogue or the temple or wherever these guys were. And the Pharisees were like, giving it to him. Come on, tell us the truth. Give glory to God. How, how did you do this? Are you really the man? And you can read it for yourself. The man starts quoting scripture. He quotes Ezekiel 18. He quotes Isaiah 1.15. He quotes Psalm 34.15. He's quoting scripture to the Pharisees. Psalm 145 verse 19. And they lost it. They called him a tow rag. Literally, you are the great unwashed. You scumbag. Out you get. That's what they called him. How are you to lecture us? We are disciples of Moses. Long-sighted lens. And because of the cataracts, they fail to see the signs. They fail to see what God can do in the Sabbath. And they miss the scriptures all pointing to who Jesus is. Now, I don't believe for one minute any of you in this room is a Pharisee. Anyone? Oh, that's me. Yes, I, I, I'm trusting God to be a Pharisee. No, no, nobody is, okay? But I don't know about you, but I know how easy it is that I can begin to view my faith through long-sighted lens. When was the last time we sung together, you sang, Shout to the Lord? Wasn't it fantastic? Anyone else got a dose of the fields? It's like, oh, yes. I'm standing there going, oh, it's been ages since I, that's a good song. And then this thought went through my head, we should play this more. <laughs> that's a long-sighted lens thought. Because that's the songs, sort of stuff I could save to. Seriously, it's, it's an incredible thing, honestly. Now, here's the thing, it's very easy. 
super easy to view our faith through a long-sighted lens. Yes? A couple of things that happened to us. Some of us were longing for a past revival when God's yearning for a future revolution. Amen? We are living in the, you know, the shout to the Lord on the earth. Oh, they don't make them like that anymore. Yes, they do. You just have a long-sighted lens. Amen? We can't let past memories of God, okay, out, outdo us. What we need to do is past memories have to become fuel for new moves of God. Amen? Inspiring of faith is that if it happened then, it can happen now and it's going to happen in the future. Amen? I, I don't want to be tethered to the past, but I want to use the past for my present so I'm fueled into my future. And I want to encourage you to do the same. Stop longing for a past revival. Oh, back in the day. Whenever I was, I remember, stop it. Use it to fuel you and let's get into tomorrow. God is doing a new thing. I'm telling you, he's yearning for a future revolution. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to disrupt the church. He, this, I'm serious. The church around the world, the capital C, is heading for a prophetic shakeup, the which we haven't seen in years. God is on the prowl for religion, everybody. Religion is done. It is over. He is finished with institutional stuff. He's gone back to raw, back to basics, back to Christ, back to the Holy Spirit, back to His Word, back to prayer, back to preaching, back to missions, back to glory. Back, that's what He's coming back to. That's what they're coming for. And I don't want to miss it because I'm stuck in a past revival. I want to be in the front seat of a future revolution. I want to drive the bus. Amen. A big open arm, shiny bus. Where are you headed? Revolution. That's where we're going. Amen. Who's in? Oh, I'm buying a ticket for that one. Yeah, we are. Front seat. I got it. This, this, this sort of bus will be thin because it would roll rows of front seats. You know, that'll be it. The second thing is this as well as we're longing for a past revival, some of us, we, we're looking through a lens of personal preference in favor of kingdom priorities. <laughs> yes when you and I know that we're in church long enough and here's the thing you, you and I will encounter moments and this is what it's all about this is the heart of open arms the heart of this church and lots of churches in CCI I hope is to create a space where you will encounter God Amen. And each other and, and, and a push on and a breakthrough. That, that's, that's the whole point of this. That's the point of setting up and tearing down and buying buildings and, and reaching out and going to Glendale. That's why we do all this stuff. Life-giving, life-changing. That's what we call it. But the reality is what it is, it's an encounter. We want you to have an encounter with the living God. Not with me, not with Al, not with, with the worship team. An encounter through those things with the living God. Amen. And so that's what it's all about. We hope there's more of them. But when you're in church long enough, you'll have those moments, you'll have those moves of God. And what they do is they move you and they, they call you and they transform you. Not every Sunday's like that for everyone all the time. But if I was to ask you for a time when God moved in your life, you can attach it to a song. I just did it five minutes ago. Shout to the Lord. I remember going to Ron Cannoli. Remember him with, with singing with Darlene Check? You know, some worship thing. It was on a cassette. A cassette, a cassette. You put it in the car. My kids, what's a cassette? Seriously, what, what is a CD? I don't even know what a CD is. Anyway, what's a cassette? I'm not even sure I know what a cassette is anymore. 
<laughs> That's the way it was. What are you, Jemai? Anyway, but you remember that, or maybe it's like a hymn book for if you're older than me, you have hymn books. Remember that? You know, I remember hymn books. Amazing. But maybe it's a place. Maybe it's, it's a building. Maybe it's a small group. I love small groups. I got saved in a small group. And then there's maybe a favorite preacher, whatever it is. Everyone, all of us have these memories because we're laughing. We can think about it. And there's more to come. There is more to come. But sometimes, though, you and I, what we can do, and listen to me here, and hear my heart, this is, this is for freedom, all right? We can categorize these moments as sacred because in those moments, God did something so radical in you. If I was to define me driving in the car with Darlene Check's cassette, shout was a sacred moment, then I'd understand that the only way God could move through me in worship was through that song. The problem is, and here's the thing, listen to me, try, try and follow the problem is that when we declare anything, anywhere, or anyone as sacred, what we do is we attribute divine power to them, but by the same token, we lock the divine power out of them. In other words, God only moves in here, through them, or in a certain way. So we've locked the power in, but we've locked the power out. So what we do is we, we can mix up God's beautiful grace to us in a moment of time and we can call it a pattern of God's power for all of time. And it's not. It is a move of God's sovereign grace in you for that moment in time in your life. And so then what happens is when God reveals himself like Jesus and he disrupts the show, and he breaks a few things, and he turns over a few metaphorical theological tables, and he clears away the clutter, and says new things, and touches things and people that no one else would look at, let alone touch or even pray for, when he, when he kind of wrecks the show. So when God reveals kingdom priorities in new ways to new peoples and new places, because of our long-sighted lens, we can become stuck because we've limited God to that moment and to our sacred personal preferences. And we say things like, that's not how God moves. God wouldn't do that. I don't feel God here. And I hear this a lot. I came to faith in a small group. I can't do big church. And I understand that. Because I, I mean, we all have personal preferences. But I don't want those personal preferences for you. And we love small groups, amen? Small groups about community. As churches get bigger, we need more of them, amen? That's how we grow and get connect. That's not anti-small group. But what it is, it's pro your future. It's pro you getting into that front seat of what God is doing when God's about to move, amen? And so and this is a, it's a, when we have to think about and look through, and, and I know exactly what it's like, okay? I know what it means to have those personal preferences. The third thing is this. When we have Christian cataracts, though, we have the, the short-sighted lens of unconfessed sin. Can I get an amen? I'm not going to labor to hear. It speaks for itself. Yeah? And this is a real dose of Christian cataracts. It's real short-sighted faith because you and I know that there's unconfessed sin in our life. There's this big world of, of faith and love and hope beyond you. you. You know it's there. You just can't see it because we're, all we can see is the unconfessed sin, the cloud in our eyes. Amen? 
And the beautiful thing about the Bible is it says that we are perfect and yet we are being made perfect. I love how the Bible keeps it really real. So we're perfect in the moment we're in, but also we're on this, this journey of, of, of sanctification and being made perfect. And, and if Paul can struggle, everybody, then I think there's hope for all of us. In Romans uh, chapter 7, I'm not going to read it all out, but you know where it is. He talks about doing stuff he doesn't want to do and the stuff that he wants to do. Why can't I do it, Lord? Oh, wretched man that I am. And I must have had conversation maybe two to three to five to six, seven times a day, okay? Especially when we had that room needed a lick of paint, okay? There was lots of those come. Why can't I do this? I will kill myself. It's just a nightmare. We have those. We do have those. Our humanity is still there somehow, but unconfessed sin, it clouds our faith. There is that sense of separation from God, that sense of separation from his leadership and his voice in our life. But remember, everybody. 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2. Amen. And we're not just picking stuff up out of the Bible to feel better. This is the living word of God. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But look, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Amen. An advocate. You know, the ministry of Jesus right now is either apostolic or it's high priestly. Hebrews tells us what Jesus is doing now. He is our apostle. He is our high priest. So Jesus is either pushing through or he's pulling you through. Amen. That's all he does. And he's praying for you right now. And he says, I write this to you because you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The righteous one. Not the right, the righteous one. That's who he is. He is our atoning sacrifice for sin. Not our atoned, our atoning. It's just a gift that keeps giving. It's in the present tense. And then in 1 John 1 verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, the Bible says he is what? He is faithful and he's just. His justice and his faithfulness and his forgiveness is ours. So I want to encourage you, it can be as simple as this for some of you. It is Christian cataracts because of unconfessed sin. And I don't want any of us, especially when Jesus has made the way possible, to miss out on what God is saying, what God wants to do, and to take you in new places. And then finally, really quickly on this one, the Christian cataracts, fear more than faith. When we feel more faith than, uh, more fear, then we have faith. There's nothing like fear, is there? There's, I don't like being fearful. Anyone love a good fear? I don't, I don't, don't like, I don't like boo. I don't like those movies. I just, I sit like that and, you know, the sort of, you know, this jump scare bits. Oh, I have no courage for that stuff at all. Seriously, I don't like the dark. Mm, not at all. I would sleep with a light on if I could. I would. There you go. Confession time. Doesn't matter what the cause of the fear is, it can cloud your faith. And the thing about fear is there's a, there's a threat behind the fear. The fear is the result of dwelling on the threat. Yes, and the threat, the perceived threat causes the fear. It doesn't matter. But the problem with that is sometimes the threat can seem more real and more tangible, more touchy-feely than, than God is. God is invisible, but sometimes the thing that causes the fear is right there with us. And it can cloud our faith and it can, it can, it can you know, it, it can stop us seeing and receiving the new thing that God wants to do in us or through us. But here we've got to go back to the Bible, everybody. We've got to go back to the living word. Paul writes, do not be, come on, you know this, do not be anxious about, what? about most things. 
Not anything, but in some situation, okay, every situation by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, he says, present your request to God. And the Bible says, and the peace of God, the irony of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard. The Greek word for guard is castle. So what God does when you begin to pray to him and confess to him, the Holy Spirit begins to put a castle around your heart and around your head in Christ Jesus. Amen? What an awesome thought. That he, the Holy Spirit builds this castle around your head and around your heart, and Jesus is on the walls. Watch it. That's an amazing thing right there. Come on. And so when we have more faith than, than fear, we can begin to position ourselves into that posture of readying our hearts to receive the new stuff that God wants to say and what to do. Very finally, I've got five minutes. So what can we do? How can we ensure that we continually flex our spiritual 2020 so that we are always ready to receive the new thing, to hear the new thing, to be part of what God is doing in the world in our lives? Number one is this. I've got two of these. That's it. Just number one. I want us to see the mission of the master. We've got to see the mission of the master. Every action, everybody, is a visible form of belief, okay? How we live is the visible expression of what we believe. Would that be fair? I can't tell you how many times I asked my kids the questions when they weren't growing up, when they misbehaved. Two questions. Number one is, what did you do? And the second question is, why did you do it? Because I was trying to get to the thinking behind the behavior. What was in your head? Anyone ever say that to the kids? What were you thinking? You know, what were you doing? What was in your brain? What was in your, what did you think the outcome of this might have been? As you were standing on the river on top of a stick. Did you think it was a bridge? What did you think was going to happen here? Anyway, you get the idea. A belief system gives birth to a behavior system. Yes, a belief system births a behavior system. Earlier I said today that this story is all about the disruptive arrival of the kingdom of God through Jesus. That God was doing something new. And if we are to minimize, shrink out Christian cataracts and minimize spiritual blindness to the new things that God is doing and saying as a church. But look, for you, you're on an adventure, you're on a journey. If we're to minimize spiritual blindness, then we must get back to understanding what Jesus has come to do. Meek and mild, he's not. Cuddly shepherd, he's not. John the Baptist writes this, Luke 3, 4 to 6. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Listen to that. Now, I mean, really listen to this. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Listen to this. I read about this this week. There's a guy called Donald B. Craybill. K-R-A-Y-B-I-L-L. -L. And he's a book out there called the Upside Down Kingdom. And he writes about this. And he says these words. I think I have the quote here. Pop it up. Paving the way for Jesus, the Baptist describes four surprises of the coming, uh, the coming kingdom. Full valleys, 
flat mountains, straight curves, and level bumps. And then he writes this, he expects a radical shakeup. I've never viewed those words like that. Jesus came to fill in all the valleys, to flatten all the mountains, to straight out all the roads, and to level all the bumps. Jesus was not coming to mess about. He was coming to turn the whole thing upside down. Have you ever watched a new road being built? We got a new bypass around Dungiven up in the northwest. And I got to tell you, there used to be a mountain. There's a road now running through the mountain. It's for me, it's a picture of what Jesus came to do. I want to put a road there. Boom, I'm putting a road right through there. You can't, there hasn't been a road there before. We're not used to a road there. I don't like a road there. I don't care. Boom, there's a road. I have come to disrupt the whole show. Four big surprises. I love it. Full valleys, flat. You don't get a flat mountain. It's not a mountain anymore. It's just flat, straight curves and a level bump. I've got to tell you. Anyway, up until this point, My Jesus has been a bit too sweet and a bit too syrupy. He has been an amalgamate of best friend slash butler slash bridge builder who I draft in with crisis management techniques. But this is not who he is at all, open arms. Jesus is on this mission, and he's on a mission to make disciples of all nations. And the reality is, he's turning things upside down. I believe this with all of my heart. There's another shift coming. There's another turning upside down around the bend. And the truth is, he's asking you, and he's asking me to help. Will you go on this mission with me? Will you be part of this radical shake-up? Will you do it? You see, Jesus agitated and he provoked. He prodded and he pushed. He loved the unlovable. He touched the untouchable. And he scorned the religious elitism with its self-pious, self-righteous clutter. He just got rid of it all. So I want to encourage you. Come on, spiritual blindness has no home in the heart of mission-driven followers of Jesus. Amen? We can't do it. We can't be blind to what God wants to do. I don't want to miss the moment. I don't want to miss a second of the adventure. But if I'm going to grab it, I've got to understand what Jesus is doing. Lads, you want to, you want to come back up totally. And then the final thing is this. It's a tiny wee point. The final thing is this this morning is this. We've got to learn then to see the moment. And then when we see the moment, we seize the mission. Now we know what the mission is. To turn the thing upside down. Watch this. At the beginning of chapter 9, we learn this conversation between the disciples and Jesus. They were focusing on the blind man. The disciples were looking at him and saw no hope. Jesus, whose fault is this? And we're no different. Because we've all said things like, what did I do in a past life to deserve this? It's the same spirit. It's the same attitude. Whose fault is this? What did he do in a past life to deserve this? Or was it his mom and dad? What did they do to deserve that? That's that's still an Irish thinking. And I love what Jesus said. It's beautiful. He says, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause and effect here. And watch this. 
look instead for what God can do. Come on, somebody. And then he says, we need to energetically work for the one who sent me here. Come on, church. Come on. Working while the sun shines. Here's what what I want you to notice. The disciples saw the man, but they were blind to the moment. Jesus saw the moment and he seized his mission. They looked at him and because they didn't know what Jesus was about, they didn't know that he turned upside down stuff like this. They didn't seize the mission. It was just done. Nothing we could do. Whose fault is this? And then we'll walk on by. Jesus goes, oh, no, no. I know why I'm here. So I'm going to seize the moment and I'm going to heal him because I've come to turn the world upside down. What a way to live. Hey, play away, boys. What a, what a way to live your life. Imagine with this fresh understanding of the mission of Jesus that he's now imparted to you and me that we could literally, not figuratively, not philosophically, not spiritually, not even prayerfully, but listen to me, literally walk around going, I have a mandate here from the King of Kings to turn things upside. I'm going to take my moment, no matter what I look, and I'm going to do what God wants me to do. What is it he says? Look instead. Look. Spiritual blind people can't look. When you flex your spiritual 2020, you'll see everything around you.